This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Good afternoon. Uh, one well-known fact about the Bible is that it contains accounts of many miracles. Uh, these stretch from the, the creation of the universe to healing ill people, and from the raising of the dead back to life to turning water into wine. And miracles are events that, that don't sit well with atheists. Uh, a miracle can only happen if there is a God to cause them. The atheists are fairly desperate not to believe in God, so they therefore have to reject the count of miracles frequently for, for scorn on them. Uh, they, they say, well, they're, they're just hearsay, they're legend from the past, and all the rest of it. They're, they're said by people who didn't understand uh, that there were laws of nature, so it didn't seem strange to them. It's obviously fairly wrong if. Uh, the, people, the reason people were amazed at the miracles is because they knew there were laws of nature and that the miracles didn't follow them um, but in this presentation I want, want to examine some of the evidence about miracles to show that acceptance of miracles is an unavoidable part of a rational understanding of the world and that Bible miracle accounts should be accepted as accurate descriptions of real events and I want to illustrate those conclusions from the Gospel of Luke so uh, let's start off with a, a, a quick survey of miracles of the Bible. The greatest concentration of them is found in the Gospels. I found 37 uh, miracles recorded in the Gospels. Uh, if you I I ignore the resurrection of Jesus, 38 if you count that one. Um, of those, 26 of them are miracles of healing. Uh, and that includes three occasions when Jesus raised a dead person back to life. Uh, there are also three occasions where Jesus produced food or, or, or drink when he turns water into wine, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000. Um, there are two more where Jesus caused a miraculous catch of fish, um, which is, I suppose, a kind of feeding miracle in its own right. And then the other miracles are, are pretty different from one another. Jesus stilled a storm, he walked on water, he cursed a fig tree, and he escaped from a crowd of people who were bent on harming him on two occasions anyway let's, let's have a, a look at one example that's in Luke chapter 7 and verse 11 we'll start at 11 to 15 we're going to look at um, and this is uh, the miracle where Jesus does even more than healing a, an ill person so Luke 7 uh, and verse 11 it says it came to pass the day after the day after the previous Account, which is also a miracle uh, Luke 7 verse 11 that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and much people verse 12 now when he came nigh to the gate of the city behold there was a dead man carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and much people of the city was with her and when the Lord saw her he had compassion on her and said unto her weep not and he came and touched the bier and they that bear him stood still and he said young man I say unto thee arise and he that was dead sat up and began to speak and he delivered him to his mother now that, that's a miracle where uh, you, know, you could say well the miracles of healing 
maybe the people would have got better anyway but people who are dead don't on the whole get better they, if someone of the dead are raised that, that definitely is a miracle um, so uh, not unless he'd been dead for quite a long time he'd been dead, dead long enough for them to arrange a funeral now okay in the Middle East you arrange funerals fast because it's hot but even so it would take some time to arrange it uh, it was a particularly awkward situation death is never a good thing but in this case the, the man's mother was left without support she was a widow she had no other children she had no husband that meant at the time that she would have no support she wouldn't be able to work uh, very, very hard anyway and, and she would have been reduced to complete poverty very quickly so the miracle that Jesus performs in raising her son from the dead would have been a matter of a complete change for her from being a bereaved pauper on the fringe of society possibly on the, the fringe of life itself the widow has given her son back and with that she is given her life back as well and the miracle caused something of a stir carry on in, in uh, Luke 7 verse 16 they came a fear on all and they glorified God saying that a great prophet is risen up among us and that God hath visited his people and this rumour of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about that word rumours just a word that means word logos um, so the action of Jesus in raising the dead is so obviously remarkable that, that the word of it spread rapidly through the area round about it even got back to Judea possibly I suppose with, with pilgrims who would be going down to, to Jerusalem on a regular basis so it, it, the fact it goes through sort of skips through some area doesn't, mean, doesn't get reported there and gets reported in, in Judea and in the area just around Nain uh, is, is sort of an extra detail which adds just a little bit more credibility uh, to the story um, now the miracles of Jesus say something about Jesus what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't usually use miracles as a means of raising support on lots of occasions he tells the recipients of the miracle to keep quiet about them well, that tends not to be recorded in Luke uh, with Luke you've got someone who didn't actually see the miracles Luke himself didn't see these miracles happen he talked to people who had seen the miracles happen but he himself was not in the area at the time which makes it different from the other three gospels where you have eyewitness accounts um, however that's an aside uh, the miracles of Jesus though do say something about Jesus when the disciples of John come to ask Jesus about himself his response is to show them a set of miracles so in Luke 7 still and verse 20 when the men uh, were come to him these are disciples of John the, the Baptist uh, they said John the Baptist has sent us unto thee saying art thou he that should come or look we for another and in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues of evil spirits and unto many that were blind he gave sight then Jesus answering said unto them go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard how that the, the blind see the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised to the poor the gospel is preached he hadn't raised the dead again but they were turning up to him near Nain he's already just raised the dead and this news of that was still uh, around uh, so 
what's interesting there he's not actually using the, the miracles as, as a proof that he has the power of God behind him more he's using them to indicate the kind of person that he is the miracles help the ill they help the poor they help the unfortunate they don't win battles or destroy armies they harm no one and they fulfill Old Testament prophecies and Jesus is actually not exactly quoting but very close to quoting from Isaiah so keep your finger in Luke and just go back to Isaiah 29 um, verse 18 uh, you've got one of the prophecies there about three actually that he's alluding to but this one is the the, the strongest Uh, Isaiah 29 and verse 18 says in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel Uh, the way that Jesus refers to his works mirrors this sort of wording of Isaiah and a a couple of other places as well it's sort of part way between all of them and by his miracles Jesus is declaring that he fulfills a prophecy that made that was made 700 years earlier one which refers to the Messiah the coming king to be sent by God but it's the fulfilment of the prophecy that's important not just the the fact of the miracles so he's not just saying look I I can do these wonderful things he's saying look I fulfill what the Old Testament says the the coming king is going to be like Um, now the miracles we looked at so far the one I've looked, looked at so far have been miracles of healing it's a completely different kind of miracle in the next chapter in Luke 8 and verse 22 onwards. Um, Luke 8 verse 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they called to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now that's a a miracle of some power. You think how much energy you've got in the waves moving up and down over the Sea of Galilee, almost exactly the same area as Morecambe Bay. It's a big place you think how much uh, energy those waves have got in motion goes flat alright waves do dissipate but they're dissipating at just the right time and rather rapidly and the wind again wind stop you know sometimes you get windy days sometimes it stops being windy but at the command of Jesus the wind uh, ceases but there's a tremendous energy being dissipated in doing that Uh, and the response of the disciples they thought it was fairly unusual in verse 25 you've got their response recorded he said to them where is your faith and they being afraid wondered saying to one another what manner of man is this for he commands even the wind and the water and they obey him but again the reason that Jesus performs the miracle is not to enhance his reputation it's actually to help the disciples they were in fear because of the storm and what he's doing is he's helping them out and, and stopping the storm from swamping the boat uh, there's another healing miracle in Luke 5 let's look at that one Luke 5 verse 1 um, see of Galilee again 
Um, this one's a miraculous draught of fishes. Luke 5 verse 1. It came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people out of the ships. Uh, out of the ship. Now, when he left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. And then that break, and they beckoned their partners, which were in the other ship, and they that they should come and help them, and they came and filled both the ships, so they began to sink. Um, now, uh, the miracle here is that even though the disciples, or experienced fishermen, couldn't find any fish in the water, Jesus, who's a carpenter, was able to tell the disciples of a great big catch, so big that it tore the nets uh, now the miracles of a different kind you know raising the dead doesn't happen catching all the fish is something that might happen on a regular basis what's unusual about it is that it was caught at the time that Jesus said it was going to happen that's what's unusual about it and I've got one last example which is the feeding of the 5,000 Luke chapter 9 and verse 12 When the day Jesus had been teaching people in near Bethsaida, in an uninhabited area near Bethsaida, it says, When the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the town and country round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. He said them, unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes except we should go and buy meat for all these people for they were about five thousand men he said to his disciples make them sit down by fifties in a company and they did so and made them all sit down then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven he blessed them and broke and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude and they did eat and were all filled and there was taken up of the fragments that remained to them twelve baskets so uh, what's going on? Well, the, tri the miracle's triggered by the need of the crowd. They've gone out to an uncultivated area near Bethsaida. They've listened to the teaching of Jesus for much of the day. Now they're in need of food. And a small amount of food available, five loaves and two fish, is not going to go very far. But it does, it feeds 5,000 people. Uh, and even the amount of food left over at the end is more than the amount of food available at the start of the miracle and that very definitely is, is breaking the laws of, of nature now there are lots more examples uh, and like I said the atheist response is, is, is to dismiss those as hearsay legend passed on through the generations growing in the telling gaining the miraculous in the process and the problem for the atheist is that that actually flies directly in the face of the evidence so the first point to be made is, is the, the dates of writing of the gospel records the strong evidence that all four gospels are written before 70 AD the year in which Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and the temple destroyed 
Uh, and in the case of Luke, which is the only one I'm going to look at in any detail, the logic for the dating is fairly simple and fairly compelling. If you go to Acts, the last two verses of Acts, Acts 28 and verse 30, verse 30 it says there Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence no man forbidding him now um, we can work out when that was he arrives in Rome in 60 AD and so two complete years will be very early in 62 AD so he arrives on the first ship pretty well to get into Rome once the, the travelling season reopens so perhaps March and um, he, spent, he spent two whole years in Rome and then well nothing, he doesn't say anything why would he pick two years in Rome and then not tell you what happens at the end of that period and the why does it say and then he was tried if he was tried or and then he was released if he was released uh, it doesn't, it just says two whole years and the obvious answer is that's because that's when Acts was written so he spent two years in, in Rome and that's where we're up to now so there you are, there's the manuscript, get it copied um, so Acts looks like it was written in 62 AD there's other evidence as well for that for example, things it misses out later on in 62 AD James, the uh, brother of Jesus was, was put to death in Jerusalem in a way that absolutely fits the, the Acts narrative It would something that would be a, a dead cert to get into Acts if Acts hadn't already been written uh, and you've also got the trial of Paul if it happened would be in 62 AD so statute of limitation says that the, after two years sorry the four years of, of, of being accused you were still in prison you had to be released if they couldn't bring proper accusation against you so you couldn't hold yourself. like habeas corpus now it's what, 48 hours or more if you're a terrorist uh, in those days it was four years a bit, a bit less good but nonetheless they couldn't hold you forever um, and uh, so Paul was out in 62 AD one way or another um, and it doesn't mention that either so it looks like 62 AD is the time for writing Acts now of course that's important because Acts is written by the same person that wrote the Gospel of Luke the style is so obviously the same there. but actually Acts refers to the Gospel of Luke uh, if you look in Acts chapter 1 verse 1 first verse refers to the gospel of Luke it says the former treaties have I made O Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach up to the day in which he was taken up after you through the Holy Spirit and had given commandments to the apostles whom he chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs uh, well you could carry on but the point is he's definitely referring to Luke's gospel there former treaties so that was written before Acts and if Acts was written in 62 AD and very early in the year then Luke wouldn't probably be written well it's written before that so it's written at least before 62 probably before the end of 61 maybe several years before the end of 61 uh, AD so you can, you can see that actually there isn't a great long period of time between the ministry of Jesus and the writing down of Luke's gospel uh, it's written within well 
Jesus would be crucified probably in 30 AD, some people say 33, and I have heard an argument for 31, but around that sort of time. So we're talking less than 35 years after the event that Luke has been written down. There'd be plenty of people alive who saw the miracles that Jesus worked who were still alive when Luke wrote down uh, his, uh, his gospel. Um, you can use similar arguments to date Mark and John. Matthew's a bit more difficult, but it's still evident it was written before 70 AD. There's no time to develop a set of legends. Um, so a lot of the people who saw the ministry of Jesus would still be alive when the Gospels were written. And if the miracles had never happened, uh, you'd expected people to start arguing about it. For example, the people of Nain supposed to raise the dead in Nain and not only that everyone knew about it in the country round about wouldn't someone have said hang on that never happened if it had appeared in the gospel while Nain was still occupied by people who had actually seen Jesus walk through or not seen if he hadn't it's because it's, it's an accurate or a reasonably accurate account uh, similarly you'd expect the people of the region to have, have made a comment on the Gadarene swine miracle if it had never happened, say, what do you mean we, we lost 2,000 pigs in the sea? Don't be silly. <laughs> it never happened. But, of course, they didn't complain because it had happened. And remember that not everyone in Judea or Galilee at the time of Jesus was a follower of Jesus by, by a long chalk. The religious authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were very much opposed to Jesus. So were the secular authorities, the Romans and, and the, the Jewish establishment, uh, between them they put Jesus to death you can hardly expect them to well they obviously weren't followers of Jesus you don't put people you're following followers don't put their leader to death not usually uh, and you can hardly expect them to conspire to pass as genuine legends that showed Jesus to be a miracle worker and yet they admitted that fact for example uh, there's, there's a, 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 a Baraitha uh, associated with that Sanhedrin 43 it says it has been reported they hanged Jesus on the eve of the Passover but for 40 days a herald went before him crying Jesus is to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and seduced Israel and led them away from God that's a Jewish uh, tradition written down about 200 AD but it's written down an oral tradition which goes back sometime before that and what's it saying? Well, it says Jesus well, it says he hanged, on, on the, hanged Jesus on the eve of the Passover which is correct and then this idea that he, he was to be, well, stoned, it says, even though they said hanged a moment before, um, because he practiced sorcery. He did things that you can't explain by ordinary means. We talk about mir working miracles. The Jewish people who were his opponents said, well, he was practicing sorcery. Um, what's interesting is that they're trying to discredit Jesus, um, not deny that he, he performed miracles. They say he did perform miracles he did it by sorcery, not by the God of the Bible. And that actually instantly goes back to the Gospel accounts, Luke 11. Uh, it goes back, this is what they said when Jesus was with them. So during Jesus' ministry, they said the same sort of thing. Luke 11, verse 14. It says, He was casting out a demon and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the demon was gone out, the dumb spoke and people wondered. But some of them said he casted out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And 
the accusing views as well. The, the, the word demon it really means we're talking about uh, um, something associated with a false god. If you read through the Greek translation, the pre-Christian Greek translation of the, the Old Testament, it, then you find that it refers to, use the word demon to refer to false gods. And they've picked the chief false god, Beelzebub, or one of the more important ones anyway, and said, there you are, he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, so they're accusing him of practicing sorcery by means of false gods uh, that's what's going on the same sort of thing that they're accusing him of 100 years later 150 years later when it, it comes up in, in the Talmud um, but basically what's going on is that uh, they are all agreeing that Jesus healed people gospels say it traditions alright they're trying to discredit him but they also say he healed people so uh, and you also get comment on Jesus' miracles in pagan writings of the period Celsus tells us Jesus can't have been very important because his miracles were insignificant all he did was to heal a few poor people <laughs> never won any battles never destroyed any cities he never defeated any armies says Celsus it hardly worth bothering with if you're going to be the son of God then you should do something a bit better than just heal a few people um, well, let's uh, get back and think about the, the issue of whether miracles occur, the atheist question. And to do that, you've got to think what you mean by a miracle. And basically, there are two kinds of miracles. First of all, there's an occasion when the laws of nature are violated. The feeding of the 5,000 is an example of that. The bread and the fish appear from nowhere. Uh, they're eaten by the crowd crowd may never realise that there only been two loaves and, sorry, five loaves and two fishes at the start the basket came along, someone's handing it out you stick another loaf of bread uh, the, the, uh, the resurrection of the dead that made another one, a miracle that breaks the laws of nature the other kind of miracle is something that's not actually impossible it's only very unlikely so the calming of the storm is an example of that storms calm down all the time but it's very unlikely that the storm would calm down at the precise moment at which Jesus commanded that to happen. And similarly, the miraculous catch of fishes isn't physically impossible. It's just very unlikely, and it's considered unlikely by the professional fishermen who ought to know about it. Then they saw it happen, they were absolutely amazed. Now, of course, the real atheist objection to miracles is that if miracles occur, then there has to be a God to cause them. But there are a couple of arguments that atheists use to deny miracles which are worth a, a quick look. Uh, now, the main objection really comes from the works of the, of the sceptical philosopher David Hume, who was writing about 1770s, something like that. 1779, his book came out, but he's dead by then. It was published posthumously. Um, Hume notes that miracles violate the laws of nature and he then says the laws of nature can never be violated they are laws of nature they can't be broken so therefore you can't have miracles which is quite interesting there's several issues there first one is that, that it's inconsistent when he's writing about the argument that God must exist because there's a need for a first cause to make the universe come into existence Hume says well law of cause and effect isn't that good it gets broken every now and again uh, so uh, you can't have it both ways but he does his best um, so he there says there's no such thing as a law of nature now he's insisting that not only do laws of nature exist but they're so inflexible that they forbid miracles 
Uh, in reality, of course, there are laws of nature and there have been miracles, and actually there's no contradiction between the two. The uh, point about laws of nature is that they describe the action of the universe as long as nothing intervenes. Uh, the, 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 the point of an experiment, if you're a scientist, you set up an experiment, what you do is you try and exclude everything possible from your setup that might interfere with the, the effect you're looking at. So you're just looking at one law of nature, preferably at a time, if you're unlucky two, so that you can see what's going on. And you don't let people intervene in your experiment in the middle. Um, and uh, that's what laws of experiments describe. Um, think of an example to illustrate the point. Supposing that I observe a game of snooker. Right? If I know enough about the laws of motion and the masses of the balls and the coefficients of elasticity and friction, then I'll be able to predict exactly where the balls will go when someone sends the use of the cube to send the ball at a particular speed and particular velocity down the, 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 uh, the cloth it's going to hit a triangle it's going to break I can do enough calculations to work out where all the balls will end up uh, and that's the laws of mechanics that are letting me do that but I can spoil those predictions if as soon as the cue ball gets fired and I merely pick a ball off the, state, the, the table or I throw another one into it or I pick the cue ball up even worse then those predictions were completely wrong what I've done is I've intervened. Now I haven't stopped the laws of nature. I've simply intervened and done something that means the laws of nature don't apply in this particular circumstance. And that's what God is doing with miracles. The laws of nature tell us how nature behaves if no one intervenes. And if God intervenes and makes a different outcome, it's not a question of the failure of the laws of nature any more than my picking up a snooker ball causes a failure in the laws of motion. Um, I think C.S. Lewis is talking about the same sort of thing. If I, if I get a, a, a safe in my room with a combination and I put £10 in it, and the next day I put £10 in it, and the third day I open it up and uh, I look in there and find there's only £15 in there, I don't sit there and say, hang on, there's something wrong with the laws of arithmetic. What I do is I suspect that somebody else has been in there and takes some of my money. <laughs> uh, it's not that the laws of nature have been broken, possibly the laws of England, he says. Um, and this is what's happening with miracles. Um, Hume's got another objection as well, it's a bit more subtle. He says a miracle is very, very unlikely, that's what makes it a miracle. He then argues it's far more likely that any evidence in favour of the miracle is, is wrong than that the miracle actually happened. So if you, you, someone says there's been a miracle, you say, well, you must be wrong because it's just so unlikely. It's more likely you're wrong. Well, uh, and of course, the, the bigger the miracle, the more unlikely it is, and the more likely it is to be wrong, he's, he's, he's saying that. Uh, the problem is that that argument would mean, even if there was a genuine miracle, you'd never be able to understand that it, it had happened. It's an argument which, uh, without any kind of evidence... Uh, reaches the conclusion he wants without having to say, well, yes, but here we've got lots of really good evidence and something odd happened. Uh, it, it's, these a priori arguments never really act. Um, supposing there really was a miracle, then Hume's argument would prevent you from accepting the evidence even though it was valid. And of course, atheists are forced to accept that some miracles have occurred in the sense of very, very unlikely things 
or even against violation of the laws of nature. They might not want to admit it, but they have to do so. The universe came into existence by a process that violates the laws of nature. So all the laws of nature you know now don't explain where the universe came from. They can't. They're part of the universe. And uh, so that one's one way where it's a direct violation of things like conservation of mass and conservation of energy uh, is that the universe did come into existence at some point. Uh, and the origin of life, that's an astronomically unlikely event. It only happened because God made it happen. You might, I suppose, well, they always tell me you might get life if you were very, very lucky, but you'd have to be so so lucky that it's impossible to believe, but I'm pretty convinced that life exists. Uh, so, if you're an atheist, you have to accept at least two miracles have happened. One of each type, and others as well, if you look at it more carefully. Um, but if you were following Hume's argument, you'd have to say, nope, they never happened. Never life doesn't exist. Any, any amount of evidence looking at the existence of life is more likely to be wrong than that there was a miracle and life came into existence. Uh, don't think it holds water. Very often the miracles of the Bible have left evidence. Uh, just go back to Luke 7. This, this is not strong evidence, but it is evidence. Um, the uh, little archaeological point. Luke 7 verse 11. It came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. When he came out to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. And we read the rest of it, read it twice now, how he was raised from the dead. Okay, what does it tell us about Nain? Well, it has a gate. The city has a gate. The city has a gate, it has walls. There's no point in making a gate unless it's got walls for the gate to go through. Now, they haven't found the gate of Nain, but they have found some of the walls of Nain. So, we know there must have been a gate, unless the people in Nain seal themselves in and they'll starve to death. That's the other possibility. It's not likely. Probably there will be a gate. So we've got archaeological confirmation. Some towns in Galilee had walls, others didn't. Slightly more didn't than did at the time of Jesus. Uh, and uh, Nain has been correctly identified as one that had it. Okay, the probability isn't that high if you're guessing, but nonetheless it's right. And this sort of thing comes up over and over again, and every time the descriptions are correct that the gospels appear to have accurate descriptions um, so it doesn't prove the miracle took place but it does show the narratives have a, have a real contact with reality it finishes off the idea that the stories are just legends if they someone made it up they would in the end have got some of these details wrong and there's another kind of evidence in undesigned coincidences you remember what an undesigned coincidence is it, it's something that occurs where two different accounts contain insignificant details uh, which are independent of one another but when you look at them next to each other they confirm one another with some other sort of sub-narrative which is completely unconnected to the main accounts now it would be very very difficult if probably impossible for a single writer to invent such an undesigned coincidence it's not quite impossible Dorothy L. Sayers once did one of the whimsy novels um, and then she went on about it for chapters afterwards uh, you, uh, you get this sort of thing happening um, but uh, for two different writers to do it between them would be uh, absolutely uh, impossible and of course in the New Testament there are lots and lots of these undesigned coincidences I want to look at just one actually 
I've got um, six in the six of those anchor instances in the uh, feeding of the five thousand alone. We're going to look at one of them. Uh, just go to John chapter six for a moment. John chapter six and verse ten, and there's a description there of the crowd. So we're in the feeding of the five thousand. Uh, Jesus says, make the men sit down. And there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. The first word for men is the word anthropos, means human beings, people. And he says, let the people sit down. And what happens is the men sit down, and this time the men, it means the males, as opposed to the women. Right? So, uh, the men have sat down. Okay, so that's the first thing. Now go back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 14. here it says there were about 5,000 men and the word there is like the males the 5,000 of the men and he said to his disciples make them sit down by 50s in a company they did so and made them all sat down, sit down. Um, and the point is that they could count the 5,000 men because they're sitting down in groups of 50 it's fairly easy to count groups of 50 so how many groups of 50 there are and then you've got 5,000 women and children who didn't sit down but continued milling about pretty hard to count so we don't know how many there were of them and that again is something that relatively easy to spot when you're reading the account but it would be very very difficult to make up and like I said there's another five coincidences like that just in this one account and a whole lot more throughout the rest of, of the Gospels but when it comes down to it the real evidence actually only comes from one miracle, uh, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Other miracles, there are little details like this that give you a fairly good idea that something really is happening. But it's proof that there are miracles really only comes with the resurrection. Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees that this was his real sign. If you just nip into Matthew 12 and verse 38... Matthew 12, verse 38. Certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An even, evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he's saying that, well, these miracles he does, some of them are even called signs, but they're not finally rock-bottom proof. They're there. If you saw them, you would have been amazed. But the thing that really convinces is the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the evidence there is absolutely first-rate and very, very clear. Uh, now, for any any event, if you want evidence to say, did it happen or didn't it happen, what happened, there are two kinds of witness, there are two kinds of evidence, direct evidence, there's the physical evidence, forensic evidence, and there's evidence of human witnesses. So if you're talking about robbery, things like footprints, fingerprints, 
broken windows and so on, there'd be evidence that there'd been a robbery. And you might identify who it was by the fingerprint. Or you might have human witnesses, the other kind of evidence, where a human being saw someone climbing out the window, noticed who it was, and could give evidence at the trial. So that's the human witnesses of it. And the evidence for the resurrection is no different. And there's physical resurrection uh, of Jesus in the empty tomb. There's a reference to that in all, all the Gospels, but it, it's almost superfluous. The empty tomb causes stir throughout the ancient world. It clearly troubled the authorities at the time of the resurrection. It was still being discussed in the middle of the second century. Uh, it's uh, Rome, in Rome, just in Martyr in Rome, discusses it with a Jew uh, and writes about it. In Celsus, it writes about it. In Alexandria, uh, middle of the second century as well. Uh, the most importantly the authorities Jewish and Roman were unable to uh, end Christianity which they would have loved to do by producing a body there had been a tomb with the body of Jesus in it they could have gone to the tomb pulled out the body and said there you are that's Jesus he's dead they didn't they couldn't do it because Jesus' tomb was empty and that is the, the, the fact that won't go away and if you want to think who Jesus is you have to come to terms with that fact it's something that's absolutely stuck there in history you can't get away with it away from it uh, the human evidence is the statement of witnesses who met Jesus alive after his resurrection Paul gives a list which includes over 500 witnesses and there's an example of an encounter in Luke Luke 24 and verse 36 uh, onwards just, just a short bit there Luke 24 and it tells you of one encounter with Jesus after his resurrection Luke 24 verse 36 as they thus spake Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them peace be unto you and they were ter- but they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they had seen a spirit and he said unto them why are ye troubled why do thoughts arise in your heart behold my hands and my feet that is I myself handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have and when he had thus spoken he showed them his hands and his feet and while they yet believed not for joy and wonder he said to them have you any meat and they gave him a piece of boiled fish and of a honeycomb and he took it and did eat before them and the point is this isn't just something in the distance that might or might not have been Jesus this is Jesus that they've been with for the last three years in his ministry in the middle he's shown them his hands and his feet you can see he's been wounded by the uh, the um, crucifixion uh, you can see solid eats food he answers questions this is the living Jesus Christ and this is the witness which appears in, in all the gospels and, and in Paul as well and in Peter for that matter in the epistles later on uh, the, the, the human witness evidence is very strong and it, it produced absolute confirmation of the resurrection to the people who witnessed uh, the resurrection the risen Jesus and those people were prepared to face horrible deaths in the arena rather than deny that resurrection so the stage of the resurrection is quite clear the evidence is solid the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead is inescapable and that tells us much about Jesus it tells us about the forgiveness of sins and it tells us about our hope for the future but it also confirms the existence of miracles and if one miracle has happened why not others associated with the same person so the resurrection of Jesus is the sign that can't be ignored 
it's up to us to see whether it, it, where it points to and to follow the lead and the teaching of Jesus. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.